Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene Rapkin. Uh, 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 so on this podcast, what I'm going to do as part of the part of uh, one of the themes is I'm just going to bring on interesting people who are real fashion fans, whether it's menswear or women's wear, who live it and breathe it and know so much about it. And one of these guys is here with me today, Sam Laban, uh, Senior Vice President of Designer and Concept at Nordstrom. And before you ask, why are you bringing a guy from Nordstrom here on this uh, unapologetically elitist uh, podcast uh, that's all about designer fashion? Uh, I'll say that uh, Sam is one of the most knowledgeable people I've met. And I think you've turned Nordstrom quite around on some level because I was just browsing the website the other day and I was browsing menswear and you got everything like from Bottega to Visvim to Undercover, Dries van Noten. And I feel like a large part of it is due to your involvement. Well, thanks for that. Tee up. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, on the podcast, but, uh, yeah, I've been with Nordstrom now for a little over two years and, um, thanks for noticing that we've been busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it's been busy. It, so it's it good has to see been. That. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll, and we'll, we'll get into the way, you know, and to Nordstrom's credit, they have been bringing people who are real passionate, genuine fashion fans. And I think that's so long overdue instead of like, bringing people who just like I don't know happen to go to have a degree in merchandising but Mm -hmm. don't really know are not real fashion fans like you know they don't live it and breathe it like you do Uh, and I think you know like I know you guys hired our mutual friend Jean you know to to help Mm -hmm. to help you work together on the menswear and he is again one of those people and it's so rare like for a department store to do that and it's an you know there's a visionary element in it and so yeah i'll just tell everyone like nordstrom is not paying me for this just so just so everybody knows like i yeah, genuinely I say, um, you, eugene <laughs> asked me over instagram direct message where we have a sort of a long-standing thread of communication about stuff uh, so it didn't even come through as an official like, pr request yeah, exactly yeah so but uh you know, be, before, uh, yeah, I can really think of like two department stores who do that. It's Nordstrom here and Selfridges in London, where you also worked. Um, mm. But let's begin at the beginning. You know, like I, I, I want to talk, I want to go to sort of through your journey uh, and through your style, fashion journey, and then ask you a few questions in the end, sort of on a uh, more analytical level. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, tell us you're from London. You're from London, right? Yeah, I grew up um, in a well, technically a city, but it's a small city uh, called St Albans, which is, um, you, as you said, I used to work at Selfridges, so it, it's 19 miles north of Selfridges uh, on Oxford Street. I know that because I remember once trying to work out how quickly I could drive there because I was running late. Um, <laughs> 
yeah, I grew up in St. Albans, which is essentially just outside of North London. It's kind of like a suburb um, that kind of has all of the London suburb culture around it. Um, you know, lots of football fans, lots of drinking in pubs, lots of Stone Island. Um, I started working. I've always been into clothes, and I think there's a long-standing tradition in the UK of this real kind of guys are really into music and really into clothes, right? And it's not necessarily like every guy, but every, you know, the, the culture is centered around pub culture. And in every group of lads that are, are friends, you've got a pretty even mix between the guys that just want to watch the football and the guys that want to dance and, you know, wear cool clothes doing it. Um, and definitely that was my upbringing. Um, so like my dad was a big Northern soul fan um, I grew up around a lot of music and then as such, a lot of the kind of style that goes with that, be it like the 60s mod scene through to Rude Boy, through to the 80s mod revival thing, through to the casuals. Um, and I started working on the shop floor of a men's boutique that's still in St. Albans, David Copperfield. Um, when I was about, I think I was, well, in the UK, you can start working when you're 15 and three quarters, okay. um, which always sounds very Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, to me, if I'm like, yes. yeah. <laughs> and can I just um, interject and say, like, a menswear does store that's named David Copperfield, like, only in England. Like, we can't, we, like, this is not going to happen in America, let's face it, ever. I wondered if you were going to pick up on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to be frank, they used to do this scheme where you could, um, you could get clothes half price and then you could put them on tick, as we used to say, where it would be like a layaway. So you would just dock wages um, each week. Uh, and I think I was paid like £40 a week or something. And I don't think I ever saw any cash because I just constantly had new Stone Island jackets. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was really like my like starting point, both, you know, technically for me, I've kind of worked in this ever since um and then you know i kind of grew up that like late teens really being obsessive about music um i guess specifically the 60s soul and then into like 70s new york kind of proto techno suicide type stuff mm -hmm. then into new wave um uh, kind of as a kid always on the like heavy guitar yeah. type stuff like you know big mary chain fan sure um I've worn all black since I was about 17. Um, but then kind of diverging from that and, and getting you know more wider and, and more eclectic. Oddly, I was always into kind of like drummer bass and uh, more electronic, but quick mm -hmm. sort of dancing music. And then as such, you know, I was the guy that was really into Stone Iron Jackets and Air Max, uh, Nike TNs or MX Plus as they're called um, in the US, which again is a very, to me, is a very kind of North London sort of subculture style. Right. Um, when I was 18, I got a job on the shop floor of Selfridges. Um, and it was around that time, well, a little bit earlier than that. Um, I remember it was the first issue of GQ Style in the UK, came out in full winter 2005. And in that, as I remember it, I haven't actually seen the edition since like, you know, whenever that was like years ago. Um, so if someone has a copy and wants to fact check me here, feel free. <laughs> but as I remember it, 
they'd done a piece on the Raf Simmons for Winter 2005 show, History of My World, um, where they, because all of the trousers in that show were based on Oxford bags, which is a trouser style that Northern Soul um, boys used to wear whilst dancing. Um, and the kind of epicenter of that scene was the Wigan Casino. Uh, and they basically did a fashion shoot on proper Northern soul dancers. And it was this real collision of worlds for me. Like my kind of connection to clothes was very much like centered locally around like the guys that I knew growing up, mm-hmm. the boys at the football, all that kind of stuff and real like pub culture. And when um, I saw that shoot, it kind of, to be honest, like blew my late teenage mind a bit yeah. in terms of someone like super high fashion kind of taking an approach to something that was so close to, to me and what I'd grown up around with my dad and his kind of musical um, obsession. And from that point onwards, I just got obsessive about like those early um, RAF years. And then it kind of went on from there. So I got the job at the shop floor of Selfridges, which was around the same time, convinced someone in the buying office to give me a couple of weeks work experience as I was like a 18 year old kid. They gave me a job off the back of that and Fast forward, you know, a number of years and I left that business as the buyer for men's designer and contemporary. Yeah. And uh, from what I read, like you really knocked on the door at Selfridges there, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So on my induction, which is like, um, you know, the day that you go in and they teach you about like health and safety, how to pick up a box and and stuff like that. um, I met a guy called John Lawler. Um, who was the menswear merchandiser and I got his like extension number and from my little desk phone well it wasn't really a desk phone because it was by the till um, on the shop floor where I worked I used to call him every day at nine and five thirty um, <laughs> and basically on like the third Friday at five thirty uh, he as I remember it sort of cursed at me down the phone and said well what are you doing on Monday and it happened to be Easter holidays from school um, so I said, I'm not doing anything. So just turn up at the office and you can come and we'll work something out. And I checked order confirmations uh, for them for a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, every day at 9 and 5.30, I would ring him and annoy him until he gave me um, a crack at the whip, as it were. You hear that, kids? <laughs> yeah, that, a direct message on Instagram ain't going to help you. You got to <laughs> knock on the door. But that, yeah, that, that's a great... I welcome that, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, it's definitely... One, it shows passion, but two, um, you know, that kind of – some people do do it, I guess, to me is what I would say. And I'm always very kind of open. Um, like I'll always set up a, com- a phone call if someone gets in touch and, and kind of hear people out just because, you know, that, that, that's how I got into it in the first place. So I, I kind of – yeah, I'm very respectful of that. Yeah, that's great. And then so from like how was your buying experience at Selfridges – like, did you did that expand your fashion horizons? Yeah, for sure, actually. And I think um, that's what kind of really broadened my scope um, in understanding about the balance between commercial, i.e., you know, brands that you can really build a business around, mm-hmm. and then how that offsets and supports being able to do some more interesting and, and innovative things. Um, like, for example, uh, I met up with um, Itor Throop yeah. uh, recently. I was with him in, in Paris in February. And um, I think it was about 2009, but we did um, his uh, exhibition called Legs. We actually had that in Selfridges. He and I wow. set that up together. 
and um, we had six of his forms, you know, those yeah, kind of like yeah. wire forms that he designed. We had six of those hanging from the ceiling in the men's department. Um, and it was the, uh, the funeral of New Orleans yeah. uh, was, yeah. you know, one of his concepts. Um, and we had all of the different trouser shapes that were based on musical instruments yeah. in there. Um, so, like, the fun thing was we got to do cool like yeah. stuff like that, which, you know, back then in 2009, yeah, that was yeah. I mean, left field. I mean, Sam, you know, Ida Throop, this is why we're talking. <laughs> like this is, you know, I saw at the time, I remember meeting him and uh, he was doing this project with Dover Street. Like he was dead. Yeah, set on I it. was there. Um, we, we had, we had the launch of the third issue of our Stars Like Ice magazine, print mm-hmm. magazine next to Ida at DSM that day we were there right well he wanted to do the legs thing uh, um at Dover Street and I remember meeting him and just saying that's cool like you know I, I get why you'd want to do it with them because even back then Selfridges wasn't quite um I mean it was cool it was Selfridges um right Selfridges has always been yeah. pioneering but I think Selfridges of today like the, the team there today have really kind of blown yeah, up the Jack idea is great. Of, yeah it's like yeah, Jack, Bossa, yeah. Seb, they're doing a phenomenal job. Yeah. Um, well, basically what swang I saw was that I was wearing an old, um, like, Japanese nylon Stone Island safari jacket. And we just, like, nerded out <laughs> over this jacket for, like, an hour. And he'd, after this, we ended up spending about two hours together. And he just went, oh, all right, man, we'll do it with you. Cool, fine. Yeah. That that that's the way. That's the way to do it. This is how you get real menswear aficionados mm. to to work with you. And okay, let's take a little detour and talk about Stone Island anyway, because since we already like you've already said it five times, so like <laughs> I'll I'll tell you a little story because you know people ask me like you know you basically like jump started the whole menswear avant-garde scene on the internet with styles i guess like why do you keep talking about stone island like we don't get it and i'm like look i've been following the brand for at least 15 years and there is more design in stone island than like in 90 percent of menswear out there today and that's what has always attracted me. You know, like in my world, people are like, oh, Carol Christian Powell invented uh, mm. object dyeing. You know, he dyed a jacket. I'm like, no, Stone Island has done it 20 years before him. You know, yeah, and they leaps and bounds in terms of technology, in terms of fabric treatment, in terms of design and how a garment functions, which I think functionality is a huge part of menswear. You know, so... Well, they were the first people to dye Gore-Tex. You know, if it wasn't for stone, we'd still be only able to get Gore-Tex in like bright red, bright yellow, bright blue. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Kind of, so they were the first people to work out a, a pigment that would take to the the membrane. But um, yeah, for me, it's kind of equal parts, like super iconic subculture based. And again, it very much sort of speaks to my roots and where I'm from. But to your point, the thing that's always kept me fascinated in the brand is their fabric and garment technology. Um, you know, be it like the liquid metal or the reflective program, you know, I still have my spring summer 2007, which I think is the first time they did the, um, like the, the reflective ice jacket. Um, but yeah, I'm a big stone guy. I guess it's one of the few brands that I've always worn and continue to wear, Mm -hmm. um, and have a, a, 
rather silly amount of it in my wardrobe. And it's all black. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does come in black. So that's cool. It's funny that I was in the boutique on uh, in Soho uh, this weekend. And I saw like two of like, quote unquote, my people. There was like Guy Fallon and Rick Owens and his girlfriend mm-hmm. was like in Paul Harden and whatnot. And yeah. they were there and I was like, hmm. I don't know if I can take credit for that, but I kind of want to. <laughs> Maybe they've gotten lost looking for it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so so then from, from Selfridges, you go to Mr. Porter, right? How did you get poached? Uh, so um, the guy that was the buying director and then the um, managing director of Mr. Porter was a guy called Toby Bateman. Um, he's since left, but he was my boss at Selfridges so I'd worked with Toby forever uh, since I was like 19 um, and he went over there and, and I joined sort of soon after and back then yeah that was uh, June 2011 I joined the business launched in Feb 2011 and those first couple of seasons it was very singular in its vision right like it was a chambre shirt a, a khaki pan mm-hmm. a loafer type by very classic menswear yeah. um, and Really, what we kind of embarked on, and you know, I worked in large part with Toby and the rest of the team. You know, it was a, a full crew effort. Effort. It was you know, a great time because it was really just people that were super passionate about men's and building something with Mister Porter. And we just kind of ran off in our own tangents of whatever we thought was cool. So that was the. I remember that October 2011 was the first time I ever went to Japan. Um, you know, and then subsequently went on, you know, I guess nine or ten trips uh, with the Mister Porter crew. Um, which of course is incredible. And, you know, we all knew of the, um, like, you know, Japanese set of brands, of course, um, from different exposure in and around London, but it's a very different experience when you're going there and trying to build like a meaningful strategy from a business perspective. So, you know, I remember the first time we met, um, Takahiro Miyashita, um, to look at like soloist and then kind of worked with him on a few things, I remember, uh, I think I was there, well, the first time I met Jun Takahashi, I think they were launching the first Gaiakusu um, collection. Mm. And I remember like just kind of randomly walking into the Nike store. It's either on or just off of Otmotosando. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was in there and we we were really close and still really are close with the Beams guys. Um, and they all kind of knew him. So kind of like meeting Jun Takahashi when he first launched his Gaiakusu in the store and just like you know what Japan's like yeah. or Tokyo specifically oh there's just you're constantly doing like random stuff like that and everyone yeah. knows each other and it's a real kind of scene yeah 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 I got I not enough love for Tokyo you know there's just yeah. never enough love for Tokyo you can do it every day and yeah it's well, incredible and that was the nice thing about uh Mr. Porter really because we were just kind of building like our, our premise was if you're into product, if you're into menswear, you should be able to find it on Mr. Porter. Right. So as such, and where we'd started with a very specific style, we really kind of purposely grew that out as an idea of just like, if you're into it, what are the best brands? And we can represent those, be it like Incatex chinos or Cleverly shoes or VisVim or Undercover or Soloist. Uh, right through to you know mainline European stuff like Givenchy and Saint Laurent yeah. and, and, and that whole world, and actually that's how we convinced the neighbourhood guys to come on board mm-hmm. uh, with us because they were sort of fairly dubious. And when we first went there in that October 2011, 
the whole kind of business over there was super dubious of online in general. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I remember just the um, the apprehension kind of radiating. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can totally see it because I've been to that <laughs> office in Japan and and I've been to the stores and you go to the stores and all the salespeople like there's like zero emotion on their faces yeah. like and you're like yeah I I know you think you're cool that's fine like yeah. <laughs> and it was very much that mix of um, kind of taking mainline European designer wear and combining it with Japanese streetwear ideas. Um, which, to be fair, you know, like John Sken- John Skelton and Dan Mitchell had already done years before with LNCC. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm really good friends with those guys. And I think what they were doing was incredible. Yeah. Um, I love John. We were- miss him. Miss him in retail, you know. Yeah. yeah I mean, those yeah. guys in retail. Phenomenal, visionary guy. Um, and we were, we were sort of taking our approach to that idea. So then rather it be kind of like Wacko Maria or Facetasm back then. I mean, we yeah. actually did end up picking up Wacko and, and it's kind of gotten more mainstream in a good way. I don't mean that as a dirty word, although right. I'm sure around here it is a bit of a dirty yeah. word. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we were kind of taking our approach to it with brands that we thought were the like the most iconic of the Japanese um, sort of set, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is incredible in a way that... You, Again, you don't expect that to be in Mr. Porter. Like you don't expect neighborhood to be in Mr. Porter. Like that's a brand like you really have to know about it to know about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've always wondered uh, and I'll hold that question that, that for a bit later. But have you ever thought like, yeah, you know what? That's great that we're doing this. There's a bit of an educational aspect that we can bring. Education is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like we can we can expose people who come to Mr. Porter for one thing and then they see that other thing that maybe they haven't seen and be like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, that was that in a nutshell was the, the logic, right? It was like, well, kind of. If you, if you, it's all stepping stones, right? And it's all, almost like the kind of um, the further down the rabbit hole that Alice goes, the more you kind of find out, and the more you you, you go off on little tangents. And that's basically the approach that we were taking: was that it, you can draw a kind of a common thread and a line stylistically through a lot of these ideas. And you, if you're into this, then you're probably going to be into uh, that. Like I remember the first time we discovered uh, Remy Relief, the sort of Japanese like surfwear brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and Goto, the guy that does um, Remy Relief, like just the, the the wash that he gets on the jersey, like the minute that you touch one of his pieces, you're trying to transport it to this kind of like West Coast American surf vibe mm-hmm. through a Japanese lens. And he, he manages to do that through, I would say, like fabrication, construction and garment technology. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were selling, I mean, not to overly simplify, but we were selling a lot of um, James Purse at the time. Right. So we were just kind of thinking, well, cool. Like people know that kind of wash with James Purse and that kind of lived in West Coast vibe. But what about if you took that 15 steps forwards with a kind of a real fashion edge and you could present these ideas together because they're not a million miles away from one another. But, you know, walking into a James Purse boutique in Soho in New York is a very different experience than finding Remy Relief in the Beams Plus store um, outside of Harajuku. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And so at Mr. Porter, was that when you eventually moved to New York or were you still in London? Yeah, I did. um, I did seven years with Mr. Porter, five of which were in London, two of which were in New York. Um, 
my wife had moved to the US, uh, I guess a year before, uh, and she, um, she was pregnant and going to have our, our first boy. Um, we've got a boy and a girl, so we actually only have one boy. So our first child <laughs> and, um, uh, and she wasn't coming back to England. So I remember having a chat with Toby and saying, you know, the US is, was always the biggest market for Mr. Um, Porter. So it made kind of commercial business sense for someone to be over here. Um, but yeah, I moved over, um, did two years with Mr. Porter. And then uh, I was introduced to, to Pete Nordstrom. Um, he and I, uh, by Jeffrey Kalinsky, mm-hmm. um, we founded Jeffrey, the sort of New York seminal boutique. Um, we met for breakfast, kind of had a like a long-standing chat over the course of about six months, um, kind of fleshed out and developed a, a role. And then I started at Nordstrom in June 2018. Yeah. And uh, you know, one of the first things you did was uh, this concept of uh, concepts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so can you tell us more about it and what was the idea behind it? Yeah, one of the conversations that Pete and I had had in, in sort of leading up to me joining was how could you, you know, a big part of Mr. Porter was always having a platform to communicate the narrative behind the brand, right? Really a storytelling mechanism, which of course in large part was the success of Mr. Porter. Um, and to be fair, it was also in large part how we managed to get kind of brands that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see on either a website or like a website like Mr. Porter was the ability to communicate the brand idea. Um, and we talked a lot, Pete and I, uh, before I joined about that as an idea and how you could replicate that in the format of a department store setting. Yeah. So, um, I should also say, uh, so Olivia Kim, um, is our, uh, vice president of, um, creative projects uh, she now also supports our home division but she joined Nordstrom I guess seven or eight years ago and she'd really been a trailblazer from a, a women's specific perspective in kind of developing a similar idea and if it wasn't for Olivia kind of breaking through a lot of the walls I wouldn't have been able to do what I've done in the last couple of years um, and she's still with us doing amazing things um, so it was kind of like an, an awareness to this kind of idea. They just hadn't really centered on, you know, men specifically and how you tell these kind of stories in the men's space. Uh, so we came up with the new concepts, um, initiative, which is, a kind of a rolling model, uh, where periodically we put together a concept which spans three ideas as a physical install build out, a custom digital site experience, and then a bespoke PR marketing communication strategy. Um, and we've done things with, uh, we did something with Dior for Kim Jones' first cause uh, collection, which I know you're a fan of. Uh, <laughs> we did, um, uh, straight after that, we worked with um, uh, Junsuke Yamazaki and Lila in Tokyo and held, hosted. So they put together the uh, the Raf Simmons and Helmut Lang yeah. archive books that came out quite recently. Um we, we were the exclusive launch partner in North America for the Helmut Lang book. And essentially, we designed spaces in three of our stores, which were our idea of the books turned into physical form and then had the actual archive pieces that were shot in the books in the store available to buy. Yeah. So no reproduction, all original, yeah. all shipped from Shibuya. I remember, I remember spending like 56 hours in Tokyo rummaging through <laughs> Jinsuke's apartment. <laughs> I mean, let, let's just 
I just want to dwell on this mm. for a minute because this is so iconic. And like, you did that. Not like, you know, not Barney's, not, you know, whatever avant-garde boutique name, but like you did that at Nordstrom. And there is something to be said about that, honestly, because this is this is huge. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And, and more specifically, um, you know, I remember I would walk onto the shop floor and see like, you know, 17-year-old kids that got on the train in from Bed-Stuy to come and try on a poltergeist parker and they were absolutely buzzing. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, they'd seen it on Tumblr or, or right. whatever or an Instagram, but of course had never been near any of those garments. And that was kind of the, the point to some degree. Um, like one, I've always wanted to do a project like that because it's so near and dear to like to me. And, and you know, again, I'm kind of a, a archive raff obsessive. It's really like the thing that kind of tweaked me onto um, more avant-garde, more high-end fashion. Um, but more specifically, like over the years, I've had lots of conversations with like, you know, fashion school kids who would like buzz over old raff, old lang, but had never actually seen the garments up close right right because it's like unless you were kind of around yeah. or you sift or you're really into it and you're spending the money through like you know what used to be yahoo.jp auctions or, or <laughs> oh yeah i've done that <laughs> <laughs> or whatnot um so in large part it was actually trying to kind of give people a peek behind the the, the velvet curtain and and kind of take a, like take away some of the smoke and mirrors and present it like we had the riot 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 bomber um the the white camo version in the in the store um yeah which is a bit of a a bit of a thing i mean i have that jacket i have the non-patched version of that jacket mm -hmm. but i got mine in 2007 for yeah. like 50 pounds in a notting hill <laughs> it's so funny like back then no one wanted it and i've said it already you know once but i would roll into barney's and like entire off collection would be 70 percent up and i'll be like i'll take that I'll take that and that and that. It's incredible how there was this sort of rebirth of yeah. the whole thing. And it's really, and like you said, it's the kids who like never seen this stuff in their real life, which, which is so fascinating. Yeah. Um, um, it's like I was joking with my wife because uh, I mean, I sold a lot of my stuff when it when the, in, I guess in like 2011 through 2014, when it really kicked off. Uh, and I remember I had a spring summer 06 mini parachute jacket from RAF that I got, you know, for kind of no money. And I bought it stained with like missing buttons and stuff. And I sold it back then. And I remember like it going for decent money. And then one just sold on Grailed, I think, for like 10 grand. Yeah. Um, which kind of, you know, it's crazy. Kind yeah, of yeah. Yeah. No, I had a story where. This kid wrote to me out of the blue. He's like, oh, I saw a picture <clears throat> of you on Styles. Like I was wearing this rough wool sweater with patches from uh, spring, summer 2002, which is my favorite collection. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and, uh, and he's like, I'll give you $2,000 for it. And I was like, I think I bought it for like 100 bucks." And I was like, yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like a moth ate it in one place, but I patched it up yeah, nice. Yeah. He's like, I don't care. Like, you know, I'll pay $2,000. And I was just about, about like book my first trip to Tokyo. And I was like, well, I don't really have a lot of money. Like I could use some money. So I just sold <laughs> into him for two grand and he was so happy. And I was like, hey, you know, works yeah, for amazing. you. 
What else do you still have in your closet that's like will make people jealous? Uh, I mean, from Wrath, I've got the All Winner 01 camo bomber again, no patches, uh, which personally I kind of prefer. But um, And then the Spring Summer 2000 Summer Come Lord uh, bomber, they're two kind of like personal grails. Um, personal favorite is the Autumn Winter, I think Autumn Winter 15 soloist, that Primal Off bomber jacket with like the leather um, yeah. pull tab straps, which yeah. um, I'm good friends with uh, Stephen Mann, the stylist. Um, the Non Place is his Instagram handle, and he's mm -hmm. kind of always gone by that from in blog sphere. But um, I remember like Steve is, I think he might have the biggest personal soloist collection in the world or oh, something. Okay. I, I think I'm right in saying that. And he, um, I remember him wearing it once. And for context, like Stephen is like, I don't know, six foot two, six foot three, super slim, like super cool, you know, dripping in like old Visvim, old soloist, long hair, long beard. Mm -hmm. Long story short, the opposite of me at my sort of like, Five foot ten, short, beer drinking, chocolate. Oh wait, yeah, yeah, I know, I know who you're talking about. He used to, mm. he used to be on Styles I guys. Yeah, he used to be on the forum. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. He, um, he was into Paul him Harden for, for, for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember him wearing it, and me being like, "Oh wow, I've got to find that jacket." I mean, we look nothing like each other, so kind of funny that I took style <laughs> inspiration from him. But um, I mean, I've probably got at this point, I guess, like twenty Stone Island jackets, ranging from sort of two thousand and five to you know the last couple of years mm -hmm. um i'm a big valence fan yeah um mainly because i like the nerdiness of like you know weather climate system stuff so i think i've got kind of one version of each of their jackets for each weather system that kind of stuff um and then you know i wear pretty simple kind of black stuff most days so mm -hmm. too many pairs of the exact same version of a prada you know, natural wool stretch pan, right? And, you know, black polo shirts and that yeah. kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I know we got Stone Island, Rough, Helmet, Soloist. Like, what what other brands are you really into? And and are there any brands that you know you're really into that you just like can't quite take the leap of you know it, it, and bring it to Nordstrom and say like, yeah, well, let's let's give it a try and see. Um, you know, I guess through the new concept system, we've been able to, because it's really a storytelling mechanism, which means you can engage with different customers. We've been trying to push it like we did the Ralph Helmut Lang archive thing. Um, they're not all kind of uniquely in that space though. I like, we did something with Matthew Williams last September, um, which was really, um, like it was an elite concept, but it was framed as the world of Matthew Williams. Like we wanted to do, um, collaborations as part of it so one of them you know we had his uh greedy collaboration yeah. exclusively as part of that concept so doing like a matt williams exclusive greedy thing yeah. within the nordstrom framework i think was kind of unexpected to your real point totally um and then uh like completely different wave different vibe but we just launched something with noah um mm -hmm. which you know i'm super into because of brendan you know brendan the way that he's kind of built that brand from a product and reference perspective is very much him growing up as a kid in Long Island into yeah. surf, skate, new wave. Well, again, yeah. like, you know, 
that's the Long Island version of me. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, I can't surf or skate, but yeah. Yeah, I can yeah. dance to soul music. So, um, it's funny so, when you, you, you don't see it, like, but when they, sorry to interject, I just want to say, like, again, like, uh, I'm not a big Noah guy. Uh, I respect it, but it's just not my style, as you know. Yeah. But when they did that collab with Depeche Mode, Violator, I was like, I grabbed my wife, I grabbed my dog, got into the car, <laughs> drove there, met G in there, yeah. and and uh, Brandon was in the store, actually. And G and G and goes like, you know, this is Eugene from Style Zygais. He's like, you know, he'd never set like foot in here unless it was not the Depeche Mode collab. And I was like, I don't think you should be saying that. <laughs> but that's so Brandon. He's so kind of upfront with that stuff, which is, again... <laughs> why i have a huge amount of respect for him and what he does so yeah. um it's funny on the depeche i was site tangent but uh i think it was uh, 2009 they did a, a a tour and long story short one of my very close friends he and his wife his wife um so a guy called kirk who used to own b store in london yeah, and yeah. then that turned into I've other shops there yeah and, so I used to work Saturdays for B-Store every now oh, and then okay, okay. Um, when I was young, when they used to be on Savile Row, Matthew and Kirk. And uh, Kirk's wife, Electra, ran the third floor of Dover Street for years. Um, and one of the girls in Dover Street was um, dating the keyboard player of Depeche Mode. Okay. Um, I forget oh. his name, but like one of the newer yeah, members. Yeah, yeah. He's not OG Depeche Mode. And anyway, they were playing at Stade de France in about 2009, and we all went. Um, nice to see them in the middle of Paris fashion week, um, which was pretty fun and like went backstage and I like completely like nerded out and got <laughs> my ticket yeah. signed by all of them. But it was around when Dave Gahan, um, wasn't, was sick. Right. Uh, so he, he didn't come backstage. So anyway, I had this ticket from, from then signed by all the members apart from Dave Gahan, which I'm still kind of going yeah. about because this is the coolest man yeah. on earth. My fashion week concert was, uh, two years ago. Yeah. In the summer when uh, Nine Inch Nails uh, played yep, in Paris amazing. and like 12 of us went. It was, it mm. was great. It was just such a, and it's such a nice break actually from all the other stuff you need to do in Paris. And then like, I took like guys from the undercover showroom with me because they had a bunch of tickets. I remember, um, I mean, this is another slight tangent, but the, uh, like probably one of my best, like my personal most, sort of revered fashion moments was uh i remember going to buy the spring 14 undercover show which was the mary chain yeah collection and um like bumping into uh jun takahashi in the showroom and like you know, basically debating which song off of psycho for candy was our <laughs> respective favorites and just walking out of the showroom and just completely yeah know, like giggling to myself like a schoolgirl that we've had this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, like this is what we are. This is why we're into this. You know, mm. this is not. And, and and I think, and I think that's what's so that's quite a few people relate to is the cultural aspect of fashion that that's often get gets lost. You know, and how do we? Well, not that I need to tell that story, but I have been telling that story you know, from my point of view. And I think you've been telling that story from your point of view. But the idea is like to tell people that there is more to fashion than just like looking yeah. good or like signaling your status, you know, like basically. Yeah, it's really community and connection. 
Um, I mean, that's the thing that I've always, and again, maybe it's like specific to me kind of growing up. Um, it, there's such a strong history and tradition of that in the UK in terms of subcultures and this connection between uh, music community and, and fashion. Yeah. And really, they're all kind of intertwined. And I'm a huge personal believer in that. I mean, I always sort of say that personally, like, I don't really care, like, what you're into as long as you're into it. Exactly. Right? Like, as, as long as you vibe with it, then cool. I can I can get excited by it. I'm very specific in my own kind of tastes. Um, yeah. But in terms of, like, what anyone else is into, and that's, that's, to be honest, why I love my job so much, because there's such kind of broad scope um to really just present ideas that i think someone's going to vibe with someone's going to obsess over um rather than it ever being a kind of a reflection on like what i'm personally into or right or not. <clears throat> yeah yeah no I, I agree and the the idea of uh that fashion can be connected to music or art or whatnot like this is the juice the rest of it is you know i mean we can also of course geek out on like construction methods and design um and it's also great, but like even with Stone Island, either there's a there's a big cultural connection. You know, it, yeah, it wouldn't sure. be where it is without it. No, yeah. Um, and I, I, one of the interesting things, and we've been talking about this a lot with like the broader, um, you know, kind of social, social, political unrest that's going on, is really trying to work out ways to tell some of those um, like cultural narratives, cultural threads. Um, because, you know, in large, there was the whole kind of period in like the darker part of Stone Island's past where it really got co-opted by, you know, kind of football thugs, right. And really right wing scene. And, you know, the thing that has always struck me is like, what would those guys think if they could really draw the threads back to like, you know, it's a pretty linear pathway from, you know, black American soul music in the sixties to, football thugs wearing stone island yeah. right it's like a bumpy one maybe but there's a pretty straight line mm, so yeah. it's more like you know to be frank the idiocy of not really understanding the connection and how you know we're all one community everything's connected all culture yeah. impacts yeah. all cultures um so any kind of uh yeah right-wing view on that is nonsense basically yeah well, i just feel that i just think most people don't dig deep enough and they're yeah. not you know they're not a lot of people are really not into nuance and, and history mm-hmm. you know the way people who are really passionate about this stuff and really want to fight out more and that's like one of the few avenues left to me like defending fashion in 2020 because a lot of it like i can't defend anymore <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know the cultural connection and the ideas around it and the passion for design and really passion for like pushing the envelope it's really to me human excellence it's not uh, such a great example because these guys will do something just to have it done, to see like how mm-hmm. far I can push. And I can say that about them and I can say the same thing about like Iris Van Herpen, you know, like on, yeah. on the completely different end of the spectrum. She'll do something just to say, this is possible. You know? Yeah, well, and you know, the, the spectacle that she creates through movement, I mean, it's so 
incredible. It's a little bit, I mean, very different in terms of like the actual process and the output, but just in terms of the idea, I remember when like first coming across old Hussein Jalayan shows, oh my God. Um, which, you know, I only ever saw on like, I guess it was on YouTube was probably how I first found yeah. them. But some of those um, old shows where like, you know, girl's wearing a hat and the hat basically eats her dress and stuff like midway through yeah. the catwalk. There's like just, just the creativity in that is yeah, yeah. incredible. So you're, um, you know, you asked, I guess, about some of the things that um, I'm into, or I think, you know, what um, maybe new people are doing like to that point around narrative. I'm a big fan of what Grace Wales Bonner has kind of been building mm-hmm. um, over the years. I, I used to sit on the, um, the fashion East panel. Yeah. Um, so Lulu Kennedy's. Uh, so we gave, um, you know, I remember sort of like, I don't know, rubber stamping, I guess, Grace's first fashion East show, um, which was a part of a, you know, they were triptych shows, right? Like three different people would show in the same venue and her ability to kind of take you somewhere very quickly through, you know, model choice, makeup, clothing, music, and theater, um, was just super remarkable because yeah. she did it so quickly, you know, straight after another show and really, you know, watching her kind of her arc over the last few years of really build that up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think what she's doing is, is super cool, especially, um, and again, maybe this is like, you know, it resonates with me just because of the, like the modern root boy movements are so close to me and I'm a massive special fan and, you know, I love scar and, and, and reggae. Um, the, like I guess we're midway through her sort of triptych that really celebrates her Caribbean heritage and like the Spring Twenty One collection, which is called Jamaica Day, which celebrates the Jamaican uh, independence from British rule. Like, yeah, I think what she's doing is super cool. Yeah, 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 and I I hope there will be more of that. But you kind of the thing is, you do have like what you just mentioned, fashion East. Like you do have the support network for that in London. And I feel like in New York, we don't. And it's so much harder for young designers here. I remember like one of the first Craig Green collections. Mm-hmm. And I tell that story to everyone who wants to hear. Like uh, Tim Blanks came, we were talking to Tim Blanks and, or he came up to me at, in front of, just before fashion show in Paris handed me a card and said, you should go see this guy, Craig Green. I think you'll like, you'll like what he does. It's pretty interesting. No one would do that here in New York. Like we're talking like the most prominent, <laughs> probably fashion journalist. Like, Well, Tim was part of the Fashion East panel. And as I remember it, so Craig was originally part of Fashion East as well. And I remember being like Lulu used to, yeah, the, like the panel was i remember going for lunch in french house a pub in soho and sitting in the upstairs room and looking at people's like books whilst we ate you know pie and chips or something and tim was there then and uh i think craig had just done craig had just done something with a dutch museum maybe or a dutch art gallery something like that i'm i'm, I'm not entirely sure but um where he'd created kind of monsters that were shaping that were in shapes of letters and we kind of saw that work and then off the back of that said, yeah, that looks really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember everyone being super into it. And then he did his first fashion East show and it was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's like, yeah. he's going to be incredible. Um, but to your point, it's through mechanisms like 
the BSC's new gen, Fashion East, et cetera, um, that really kind of can support and build upon these creative ideas that just aren't fully sort of fleshed out at all. You know, in the early days, Craig really just wanted to create and it was more of an artistic expression yeah. than it was ever kind of like a business per se. And, and now, you know, it's, 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 it's doing super well. And he and, he and Angelos, um, who runs a business with him, have done a, a phenomenal job, I think. Yeah, yeah. And like Eiter is another guy, Eiter Throop, where like mm. Tim Blanks was like a huge champion, you know, and he would write about it like on style.com back then. And I thought like this is so great that you do have that support network for young talents. You know, mean, meanwhile, like guys in New York, like like my favorites like a, of new menswear brands like Abassi Rosborough, mm-hmm. you know, like they're shutting down the brand because New York just does not give them the support that they honestly deserve. And that's like that's heartbreaking. You know? Yeah. We've been talking that, and you, you know, you mentioned Gian uh, coming on board to Nordstrom. He's now our men's fashion and editorial director, um, Gian from High Snob. And um, we've been talking a lot about that in terms of what can we do to really amplify and build um, profile, exposure, communication strategies for interesting kind of new novel ideas that are coming out of uh I mean, I guess the U.S. specifically, we're, we're, we're talking more broadly than that. But to your point, I think in the U.S., um, it kind of needs those platforms. And the CFDA do a lot of great work in terms of, you know, building it. But it's just a different thing. It's more yeah. here. I feel like it's it's instantly more business orientated. Exactly. Whereas in, the Lon- in London, it's more of a platform. Exactly. Um, which is it's just a different tact. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a conversation that, that we have a lot and something that we're talking about. And. Yeah, for what it's worth, I actually you know, the, the the moment, although it's been longer than a moment now, that we're in in menswear in terms of the like the commercialized slash more democratic approach to kind of high end fashion, i.e., you know, streetwear's prominence mm-hmm. in kind of major European luxury houses. To me, that's a really good thing because. Quite frankly, it kind of means there's more commercial opportunity with high-end designer, which then in turn opens up more opportunity to take more risks, right? Like as a retailer, if you kind of know that you can take a certain amount of money out of these really desirable kind of fairly now like mainstream desirable collections, then, you know, it gives more opportunity and more avenue to do kind of more more things left field, more things unexpected, um, you know, and elevate yeah. you know smaller but super interesting voices yeah that's our hope anyway yeah yeah i i hope so too because you know the flip side of that to me like wh- where i see the danger is that um there's a lot has been watered down and i'm not against what you're saying like you can arguably say like comme de garçon has built like the entire business model on that right like we're gonna sell play okay. t-shirts here and then mm-hmm. we're going to put this like incredible stuff on the runway that blows everybody's mind, you know, and then we'll do DSM and perfumes and whatnot. Yeah. And as long as it stays that way, you know, to me, the danger is that the super like commercial run of the mill stuff is like, is, is, uh, taking up too much space. You know? Yeah. 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 I, to your point, I guess the, the real important point is that the, the pie gets bigger. Right. Like overall, there's just more space for kind of different ideas yeah. rather than it, it, it. Rather than those more kind of straightforward commercial ideas 
sucking all the oxygen out of the room to not allow yeah. other things. And I, you know, I think there's a few, uh, like I'm, you know, friends with Kiko Kostadnov and I like, I like what Kiko does because like from my perspective, I think his, like the way he kind of presents his collections is like fairly kind of out there and very directional. And, you know, he kind of goes off on his own kind of tangents, but what it really kind of boils down to is I think he makes really great trousers. Mm -hmm. I've got three or four different styles of pants from him. And I think his kind of approach to pattern cutting and, you know, anyone that uses like Laura Piana wall frame or like storm system fabrics and then does something super fashion forward. So I'm going to vibe with just because it kind of, it speaks to me. I know you're not the biggest fan, but that in itself, I think is what's cool, Mm. right? Like you can be like super opinionated and really in this space of avant-garde fashion. And there are things out there that technically are in the world, but you're not into. Yeah. I like that friction. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I like the fact yeah. that there's different I do ideas too. Yeah, I do too. And again, a lot I think it boils down to honestly like to exposure because like what I've seen from Kiko in stores is just like a lot of polyester. Right. <clears throat> and like I and I know that's not necessarily what he offers. Like and I told the story the story before, but again I have to say like when I started going to Paris to review shows. And the first time I walked into a showroom of like, of like Anzimilimister, I was blown away. I was like, where is all this cool stuff? Like, why don't I see it in stores? And, you know, and American stores are notorious for like buying the blendest, most commercial stuff. And like, you know, we, we, we had a trailblazer in Barney's, but they've falling off that wagon. Uh, you know, and started doing what everyone else is doing, and you know, look where they are now. Mm-hmm. But, but it could be that, you know. But yeah, uh, and, it, and that's 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 fair. I, I think that's a that's a topic that we touch on quite a lot. Um, and you know, through my career, it's always been really important. Like ultimately, buy the collection, buy the brand to be the absolute best version of of the brands and really like at its core, what that brand stands for. Because to my view, if you, if you can't do that commercially, you shouldn't be buying the brand. Exactly. Right? Like if you have to buy a watered down version of an Anne, a Rick, a Boris B. Jansaberry, like yeah. the basic Jersey is not what those guys are about. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, exactly. if you can't get really deep with Boris B. Jansaberry on his tanning process, cause he's just skinned his own cow, yeah. like, <laughs> which like he does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, that, then yeah. don't do it. And that's always been, that's why I've always valued boutiques. And it's like Helmut Lang was to me like the prime example. Like I would go into his boutique on Green Street and I'd be like, just the accessories. I would often think, why isn't this incredible stuff in Barney's? Mm-hmm. Like, look at these inc- accessories. They're like just the wallets, the keychains, all that stuff. And again, I didn't have a lot of money back then, but even like buying a pair of jeans or a keychain was, was an event in itself. You know, so um, I mentioned fashionista, and then also I was on the new gen panel as well, um, you know, concurrently uh, when I was in London. And one of the conversations I would always have with young designers is like build a direct connection to your customer as quickly as you can, right? Like, and you know, opening bricks and more retail is really expensive, but opening a website isn't. Um, and people would always think that I meant that from purely like, 
business perspective, right? As in like start an additional revenue stream outside of wholesale. But really the important bit was building a direct conversation and narrative with the customer so that you could really understand what was resonating directly and you weren't just relying on on wholesale channels because the wholesale channel really looks after for its individual uh, needs, right? Like the department stores typically don't buy full world of because that's not really what they right. kind of need from that brand. But I think that's where... Um, you know, direct retail relationships become so important because you really can build the full world um, and really build out ideas that people might not expect. Like, you know, Valence years ago, I guess five or six years ago, launched these um, like laminated leather wallets. I mean, I don't think they've ever sold them because they often give them away as part of like the showroom experience. Mm. It is my favorite wallet I've ever owned. <laughs> it's like the most slimline black card wallet yeah. you can get because it's just like a laminated leather. Um, but yeah, very much to your point, just kind of seeing how far you can push the idea of, of, of brand and, and retail being the best opportunity to do that. Yeah. So I want to, I know we don't have that much time, but I want to touch upon something that's been whirling in my head and I see this conversation happening all the time. And I seem like the world is pushing one way and I'm pushing the other way. And I just wanted to get your handle. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm so, you know, we're at a point where the customer is absolutely king. You know, I think the customer drives fashion like they've never done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, you know, we, we, we talk about it as democratization of fashion and whatnot. And that all sounds like fine and dandy. Uh, to me, the danger is that if you, well, first of all, like we talk about, I'm going to say something real controversial now. Uh, you know, we always talk about like customer has more information now than ever before. You know, they're, they're more educated than ever before. But I would argue the customer is not more educated than ever before. They just have more information than ever before, you know. But instead of like, uh, for example, like I think by and large, like the customer today doesn't give a shit about quality. Like I look at the stuff people are buying and I'm like, and the kind of money they're paying for it and having, you know, been around designer clothes for like and luxury clothes for like, over 20 years now, I'm like, no, this is not like, that's not <laughs> like, that's not okay. Like, I remember what Jill Sander cashmere felt like, like cashmere, like that doesn't exist anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So we have that on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, and additionally, I would argue that the customer, you know, people say the customer drives the business, but I don't really agree with that because I feel like it's just the, um, the, 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 the influence has gone from designers and boutiques and shifted to celebrities, you know, and in mm-hmm. menswear, it's the hip hop artists, basically. So I would mm-hmm. say like, no, customer is as susceptible, if not more susceptible to influence as ever before. It just comes from different sources now. So I don't know what you take on it and how do you solve that, that problem at Nordstrom? I think, um, Two things I'd say. One, I think customer drives the business, but it's whether or not they should and do drive the narrative. Right? I think there's probably the the disconnect for me because the and it's really splitting those two things, which kind of loops back to what I was saying before that like 
you know, speaking specifically to the approach that we would take at Nordstrom versus like the industry as a whole, there's the fact that more guys are into high-end fashion than ever before, um, you know, because of hip-hop culture, because of sports star culture, yeah. you know, the fact that NBA guys, NFL guys are like super into wearing, um, you know, quote-unquote high-end designer um, you know, or at least kind of luxury European brands more than ever before. And now there's a medium to flex that product. Yeah. Right. Like, so basically you can buy a $600 t-shirt, a $1,000 sneaker and a $1,000 pair of jeans, take a picture of yourself, stick it on Instagram. And you've got an output for like being able to, you know, flex the product that you've bought and, and your kind of style as it were. I think like that really is what's fueling the business um, I think from my, and to me, like, that's cool, right? Like that means that more guys are into it. There's yeah. kind of, there's more, there's more business there, which in turn, again, as a retailer means that we've got more opportunity to do more interesting things. Mm. And I don't necessarily mean that that's like not interesting, you know, full respect. Again, to me, it's like, as long as you're into what you're into, cool. Yeah. Like I, I'm here for it. But I think to your point or what I'm hearing is those kind of like the deeper, more kind of culturally nuanced real like menswear aficionado type product where people are really in that scene and really like nerding out over seam allowance and fabrication and construction and sort of cultural reference points by having that kind of more like business fuel that's coming from this kind of more mainstream business that's kind of built and built and built and is now bigger than it's ever been before in the men's space yeah, for sure I mean, let's face it, like straight, straight guys are allowed to wear fashion. Like, when does that happen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which, like, in short, I remember working at Selfridges when Watch the Throne, the Kanye Jay-Z album came out and our Givenchy business went through the roof. Yeah. And overnight, you just had like all these guys that were previously like drinking Stella in pubs, only wearing like Stone Island, <laughs> now suddenly wearing like Rottweiler t-shirts for 600 pounds. <laughs> yeah. um, which then in turn meant that we could, we could go deeper into like the ideas that maybe like, you know, people that are on style zeitgeist might actually appreciate, which we previously hadn't been able to do because it wasn't as dead set yeah. where, you know, the volume was coming from. So like to me, and I can fully appreciate for people that are really like fans of um, the deeper, like more kind of menswear aficionado thing could, you know, poor score or, or, or not be as into that, like, democratization kind of mainstreaming of designer fashion in my position it means that we can do more interesting mm. stuff like you know if we weren't building a um you know a dior burberry fendi style business in our men's space would i have gotten away with doing like an archive raf simmons helmet lang concept at nordstrom right like right so to me it's the yin and the yang it's the it's yeah, the two yeah, sides yeah. and and so, do you hope that like a lot of these people, because that's my personal hope, like, hey, maybe they'll eventually graduate to something. Maybe we can show them something more interesting. Uh, yeah, again, uh, and not to be um, sort of, you know, Swiss on on, on you. Like, <laughs> I'm genuinely like, if you're into that, cool. Like, because yeah. I, I don't ever see it as a sort of a reflection on, you know, anything other just than like that person's interest. I think for me, and, and this is the approach that I've always tried to take, it's, it's giving people those stepping stones. So like the right. approach that we've always taken to new concepts is, like, so we did a concept with Union 
uh, in LA, yeah. Chris Gibbs, uh, Beth Gibbs um, store in, in LA, which, you know, the original owners were James Jebbia and yeah. Marianne Fusco. We actually met, actually, at our. Okay, yeah, that's where we event. met. Yeah, we did, right, yeah. yeah. And the reason that. You know, we hadn't done that much in the streetwear space. Obviously, streetwear is a big thing in menswear. Yeah. <laughs> right? No question. I think everyone would kind of say that's <laughs> fair to say. Yes. Um, so wanted to do something that could kickstart a business in that space, but I wanted to do something that would have like a cultural story to tell. Um, and the thing for me with that concept was if a kid wanted to walk in to you know, our store in LA in the Grove or our store in New York or our store in North Park in Texas and buy a cool looking $45 streetwear t-shirt and never think anything more of it, great. Right. You know, we've got that for them. But if you want to find out a bit more and find out some of the more, the, the story behind streetwear, then that union concept allowed us to tell that story because, you know, arguably, you know, union started in 89 in New York. You, you yeah. can argue that it's the first multi-brand streetwear store ever. Um, you know, Supreme's founder was the original owner. Yeah. And then you can build from there, you know, its connection yeah. to Stussy, how it moved out to the West Coast, Chris Gibbs' story. Mm. So to me, to answer your question, I guess it's about giving that kind of like the surface level, the easy, the kind of the entry point, the gateway to the business, but then making sure that you can line up the stepping stones so that if someone wants to find out more, we can try and kind yeah, of like yeah. build that narrative for them. Yeah. And yeah, Chris is a great guy to go to do it with because Chris is the first person who like so succinctly explained streetwear to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were just on by chance, like we, we met in Tokyo when they were opening Union in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I was literally walking down the street and I heard my name, someone yelling behind me and I thought, Oh, well, in Tokyo, that's interesting. So I I, I turn around and it's uh, Ricky Strong who who used to mm-hmm. work at Com and then he became like Chris's right-handed union. I was yeah. like, what are you doing here? So yeah, we are, we're opening a branch of the union in Tokyo. And I said, oh, well, that's cool. So like I, I called G and actually and I said, he was at High Snow and I was like, hey, do you want to do something on this? He said, yeah, great. So I interviewed Chris um, the day after the store opening and he explained, and I never forget what he say, said about streetwear, uh, you know, and especially Japanese uh, streetwear designers, where he said, like, yeah, remember, like, when you were a kid and you're wearing, like, that sweatshirt that, like, looks like a potato sack on you, like, and those, like, huge sweatpants and whatnot. He's like, and one day, like, you encounter a t-shirt that actually fits and like, you know, corresponds to the contours of your body and like, and the Jersey is incredible. You know, it's not like this, like run of the mill, like champion stuff, but it's like, you know, uh, loop wheeled fleece. Yep. And I was like, yeah, okay. I, I, I can get behind that. Like that, that makes total sense to me. Yeah, yeah, Chris is great. Yeah. He has like such a phenomenal perspective and eye and like he's just a super good guy. I have a, a lot of time for him and his wife and um, I think they do a great job. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't have a lot of time. Like uh, anything else that you wanted to discuss? Uh, I think we covered, you know, we covered I, a to be lot. Honest, like, I, I, I came into it like, you know, open-ended to, us to have a bit of a chat. So I didn't really have anything yeah. to, uh, okay, cool. To uh, I, I'm very, I am, I have to say, I'm very curious where, 
you and Gene are going to take Nordstrom next. Oh, well, one more thing. Congratulations. Your, your own promotion is quite recent, right? Now you're also in charge of designer women's wear. So we can talk about that for a couple of minutes. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess over the summer, uh, you know, time has definitely blurred for me in light of the like the pandemic and sort of crisis management. I can barely remember, you know, what happened last week. Never mind <laughs> how long ago that happened. But yeah, I, I got made uh, senior vice president of designer. So um, I support all categories, men's, women's, kids, handbags, shoes, oh. um, which is fun. And, you know, for me, the big thing and, and the big challenge um and the one that i'm excited to go after is is building a perspective and a point of view and building a narrative around how we communicate brand ideas right like i think that's the the common thread that like i'm a real product guy um i just love product and being around yeah. you know clothes so how do we take that kind of ideal and that customer connection to product and brand and bring that to life in a department store setting across you know the full scope of our designer business, be that, you know, the big guys, the caring LVMH, you know, Chanel's of the world, right through to more nuanced, more uh, conceptual um, kind of emerging and advanced uh, designers. And, and how do we craft a message so that we, so it feels like we stand for something when you walk into any of our stores that have designer yeah. product and or our website. That's, that's the plan. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope, you know, the bosses listen to you and you bring the same kind of expertise that you have in menswear into this really very different space. And uh, um, I hope it works out. And listen, the opportunity is there, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And, you know, the, uh, the business is run by you know, people whose last name is Nordstrom. Yeah, you know, Eric Nordstrom's our CEO. <laughs> Pete Nordstrom is our president and chief brand officer. We also have Jamie Nordstrom, who's president of stores. Yeah. Being a big corporate, publicly traded business that's still run by people who are from the family is really meaningful. Yeah, you know, it, it's run like a family business, and and there's so much kind of passion and you know desire to do things for the right reasons with a long term strategy and in, in insight. And really think about customer first, which I know is like, yeah, that feels like kind of common patter in the corporate world right now. But for me, it's meaningful when it's coming from someone whose last name is also above the door. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks uh, for taking the time. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. And thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate you know being able to be in on the podcast in its first series. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Sam. Take thanks. care. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast, hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc, intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Styles Thank you for listening.